Hello and welcome to Account Instruction Help and How To. In this lecture, we're going to be talking about the auditing of a few asset accounts and the processes related to them. Those asset accounts being the prepaid expense, intangible assets, and property, plant, and equipment. At the end of this, we will be able to list type of prepaid expenses and intangible assets, explain the audit approach to audit, auditing prepaid insurance, describe the audit process for intangible assets, discuss the audit process related to property, plant, and equipment. Property, plant, and equipment. When we're talking about property, plant, and equipment, we're talking about those larger types of purchases, those larger purchases usually being depreciable types of assets. Those depreciable types of assets are usually gonna be a fairly large dollar amount on the books of the corporation. So they're gonna represent a material impact on the corporation, and therefore we're gonna to have to dig into these and test them fairly well for that reason. When we think about property, plant, and equipment, we could have two different circumstances within the process. One, it may be a company that we have a reoccurring audit. We may have audited them last year, and therefore we could have less testing in this particular area because of the nature of property, plant, and equipment, and the nature being that they're long-lived assets, versus a new client. If they have a new client, we probably have to do more testing. Why? Because that beginning balance, the stuff that's in the beginning of the year that was there last year, that's still there this year because they're long-lived assets that are going to, to uh, depreciate over time, has been some testing has been done last year. So if we can rely on the testing that we did last year for property, plant, and equipment, then we can have some reliance in the beginning balance and do less testing of that beginning balance. If, on the other hand, we are taking on a new engagement and we had not done the audit, or we don't just, for whatever reason, don't have faith in the prior audit that was done last year, then we're going to have to do a lot more testing of the property, plant, and equipment as a whole because we have no reliance on that beginning number. When we think about property, and plant, and equipment, it's different than other types of assets, and we can treat it differently in that there's usually less transactions involved in it. When we think about something like accounts receivable, there's no way we can just print out the, all the transactions in accounts receivable, look at the general ledger, and look at all the transactions and test them all. There's just too many. Not possible. We have to do a lot of sampling and whatnot in that area. When we think about property, plant, and equipment, if we printed out the property, plant, and equipment, you can imagine the GL, property, plant, and equipment, all the transactions by date, and, the, and all the transactions by date in the accounts receivable, a lot fewer, a lot fewer of them in the property, plant, and equipment. Therefore, we can go into a lot of the transactions, drill down on those transactions, and test a lot of them, maybe even all of them, within the property, plant, and equipment. So that's the approach we're going to be looking at. We're often going to be testing the activity that's going to be happening through the year. What's that activity going to include? Well, it's going to include, of course, purchases are going to happen. We're going to drill down on the purchases and look at those transactions. And any kind of sales or disposals are going to be there, and we're going to drill down on those transactions. And then we're going to have to drill down on things that may have happened, like disposals that weren't reported. And those are things that won't be on the GL that we're going to have to test and see uh, if the, the, it happened and we need to put them on the, and they should be included. If we think about those transactions in a bit more detail, if we're purchasing the asset, we're looking at the GL, we're looking at the purchases of the assets. Remember, those purchases could be for cash, obviously, but they also could be, and they, and they quite often would be, for some kind of financing. So when we look at the property, plant, and equipment, we're going to drill down on the purchase, see what the agreement of the purchase is, and oftentimes it may include a loan for the purchase as well. So we may be analyzing the, the loans for that particular purchase at that time when we drill down on individual transactions. Then we have the disposals. Now, when the, when the asset leaves the company, remember we purchased, this is an inventory. It's not like we purchased it and we're planning on selling it. 
But at some point in time, sometimes we do sell. Maybe we bought a big piece of equipment and we wanted to sell it at a later time. So that could happen and we, we want to go to that and analyze the sales agreement and see how that's going to happen in terms of disposal. Also, of course, equipment will just get old and we'll, maybe, maybe we'll exchange it, maybe we'll just retire it, maybe we'll just abandon it. And those are types of situations when something gets old and uh, it gets retired or disposed of, especially if there's no cash that, that changed hands within that uh, transaction, doesn't always get reported. And that's because, it, well, it's possible for it not to get reported. And, and that's because it, there's no net effect oftentimes if, if it was a fully depreciated asset and it's no longer uh, being used and it's disposed of or it's, or it's obsolete, then to dispose of it, it's, it's, at, it's at a book value of zero because the, if it's fully depreciated, the assets on the books and then the accumulated depreciation related to it is equal to the asset. Therefore, the asset minus the accumulated depreciation is zero. But it's, it really should still be disposed of because we're seeing that asset on the uh, subsidiary ledger. It's still being reported. It, and so total of property plants and equipments is overstated and total accumulated depreciation is overstated. And the net of them is, is not because it, it nets out. So really, we should take those off, and sometimes that, that's an area that would get overlooked. Uh, we have the depreciation. So the depreciation, that could be straight line, it could be double declining, and we need to see what the method of depreciation is. could be more complicated than we might think, because when we think about depreciation, when we calculate depreciation, we often think of it as like one asset, and we're calculating depreciation on one asset. But when we look at the depreciation schedule for a company, there could be hundreds and thousands of assets on there and so and they're all going to have a different purchase date they're all going to have a different useful life a different salvage value and we're going to have to test the depreciation schedules also the depreciation for books will be different than uh, taxes oftentimes we're, we're looking at the gap generally accepted book depreciation then we have the issues of leasing for capital assets which can be an added wrinkle added problem that could be frustrating and that's going to be the idea that uh, there's been incentives a lot of times for companies to actually uh, format purchases as leases basically to format something as a lease was thought to be have some advantages in some cases over formatting something as a purchase so what we need to do is a substance over form argument and that would be that if something says it's a lease but in format it's actually a purchase then we need to put it on there as a capital lease and then we need to capitalize it and treat it as if it was a purchase so basically so some of the testing would be something like in a logic just in logical format you would think well if you set it up as a lease but you're required to lease it for the entire useful life of the asset in substance that's not a lease if you can't get out of the lease and you have to have it for the entire useful useful life of the assets it looks like in substance it's actually a purchase and therefore we should put it on there as an asset rather than just paying lease payments or recording lease payments or if the entire lease basically was required to pay uh, a price that if we include interest in the calculation is equal or greater than the purchase price then the market value well it looks like in substance it's going to be a purchase even though the form says it's a lease so that, that can be complex and we need to look into those types of issues. We're going to get a schedule, a flow chart from the organization if they have one. So if they have a flow chart related to property plant equipment, we want to take a look at that. And if that'll give us that pictorial format in terms of who's in charge of the purchasing process, how is that going to be recorded, and then how is it going to be reviewed, what's the review process, what's going to be the process for recording the depreciation and revaluing re this process. 
it's good. in part it's kind of like the purchasing process because we're going to have part of the purchasing process in here but there could be some differences in there as well so if they have the flowchart for that that'll give us an idea of who's involved what's the separation of duties and we will put that in our working papers as we uh, work through the set the next steps of the audit which will include then the assessment of inherent risk related to property plant and equipment, the inherent of control risk with relation to property plants and equipment, and then substantive testing. In terms of inherent risk, when we go to the inherent risk, so like many areas, inherent risk will differ depending on the different types of companies, inherent risk being that risk that the company doesn't really have control over because it's kind of inherent to the nature of the company a lot of times. But uh, in this case, there's a couple factors we can look at in terms of inherent risk. For example, if they do have a lot of leasing agreements that we suspect are going to be capital leases and we need to go in there and determine if it's actually in substance a capital lease versus not a capital lease well that's a big complex and we have to make determinations determinations that are actually kind of counter to the the form of the of the agreement so that could be uh increase in inherent risk because that could be difficult to do at times there's also an issue if they were to purchase an asset then it's not too difficult to know what the value of the asset is because they purchased it on the market. And so whatever they purchased it for, that's the market value of the asset because that makes sense. But if they then created the asset, if they made the asset, well, then we have some complexity in terms of what's actually the value of the asset. It's a bit, it's a bit more complex in terms of how do we determine the value of the asset and that could add some inherent risk to this calculation as well. So that would increase the inherent risk. Also, we have this idea that if it's a continuing audit, and we can rely on last time's audit, then we can have reliance on some of that beginning balance. But if we found an error in the prior numbers, or if we just don't rely on the prior audit, then that's going to increase the, the risk factor there as well. And of course, we would end up having to do more testing in terms of the beginning balances and not, not just be able to rely on the change from year to year. Now let's take a look at the control risk. So we have the inherent risk, we're setting the inherent risk, and then we're taking at the control risk. That's going to be the risk related to the company having their procedures in place. So if they have the proper procedures, we can set the control risk higher or lower based on those procedures and then determine how much substantive testing we're going to have. Now, control risk, we have our assertions, our assertions of occurrence. If we're looking at management's controls, their processes with related relation to occurrence, we know that purchasing the property plant and equipment is basically part of the purchasing process. So we're going to have similar controls that we would have within the purchasing process, including the review and authorization uh, of the process and the separation of duties. We could have some additional controls as well. So because of the dollar amount, for example, we might say if it's over a certain dollar amount, we need to have more authorization for these types of transactions. So we could have increased levels of control. We also want to look at the controls over the uh, assets that are no longer in use, that disposal process. How are we determining when we should take the assets off the book, books? And, and again, that's, that's the one that uh, we, don't, we may not see all the time because they, they may just depreciate the asset down to zero and we're not getting back in there and, and seeing when the asset is obsolete and, has been, and should be taken off the books even though it, it is fully depreciated. Then we can take a look at completeness. Now, when we go into the, to the ledger for completeness, they should have a subsidiary ledger. So, of course, similar to accounts receivable and accounts payable, when they have a subsidiary ledger, and that subsidiary ledger breaks all the transactions out by, for by a customer, and it breaks it out by vendor in, the, in, the, in terms of accounts receivable and accounts payable, respectively. 
we're going to have a subsidiary ledger type account for property plant and equipment. What's it going to do? It's going to list the uh, description of the property plant and equipment. It's going to have the location, hopefully. It'll have the ID number. It's going to have the cost of the property plant and equipment. It's going to have the depreciation value uh, or the depreciation method that we're going to use, straight line, double declining. It's going to have the years that it's going to have, um, and it's going to calculate the depreciation and the book value. And, and that could be a complex ledger. Again, that's when we think about depreciation uh, for, for a lot of different types of assets, that, that ledger is going to be pretty comprehensive. And, of course, it should tie out, that subsidiary ledger should tie out to what is on the financial statement. Separation of duties related to property, plant, and equipment. The controls related to the separation of duties. Some of these will be familiar because they'll be similar to the purchasing process. Uh, the initiate, uh, Initiating the purchase of the property, plant, and equipment should be separated or segregated from the person that does the approval function. We don't want to have the same person initiation as the approval. That defeats the point of the approval process we want to have two people involved so that one person can't both initiate and approve we want the records for the property plant and equipment to be separated or segregated from the person doing the general ledger recording the general ledger transactions and that's because the, the property plant and equipment records is going to be the depreciation schedule and recording that information we're going to tie that out of course to the general ledger and if we have the same person involved on both of those then that's going to uh, hinder the process of, of us tying it out in order to, to find problems between those two ledgers by tying them out. The property plant and equipment records, the one that's recording the record, should be different from the custodial. So, so the person who is safeguarding the asset or has custody or is looking over the assets should be different than the person who is, is maintaining the records because obviously if someone has records, is in charge of the records and in charge of uh, the custodial function or handling the asset because equipment can be stolen and the theft can be canceled by adjusting the, the accounting records. We also want a difference between the physical inventory on the property plant and equipment and the record keeping if we're doing a physical count. So if we're going to do a physical count similar to if we're physically counting the inventory, then we want to make sure that that physical pound, the person doing the physical count, is going to be different from the record keeping because clearly, again, we want uh, the, the person counting. If they were the same person, they can falsify the records with the physical count and the record keeping. Now let's move on to the substantive testing. So we've talked about the inherent risk. We've talked about the control risk. Now we, we would take those and determine how much substantive tests, what are the actual substantive tests we can do, those things being like drilling down on the actual observing and looking at documentation, as well as analytical procedures. So let's take a look now at the substantive testing of analytical procedures, those being the things that we can do in our office, doing ratio analysis and comparisons. We did do substantive testing in the planning phase, and we also are going to do it here in uh, the substantive testing phase. So substantive testing related to analytical procedures for property, plants, and equipment. We could clearly do what we're going to do with just about every account. We're going to compare the prior year balances to this year's balances. So if you think of the balance sheet, we're just taking the balances related to property, plants, and equipment from last year, comparing them to this year, subtracting the two of them, <laughs> coming up with the difference between those, and seeing if that difference is relevant. We also might take the percentage change as well, and a lot of times that ratio analysis is something that can be more comparable to other types of industries as in, rather than just the dollar amount change. Then we could take certain types of ratios. We could take a ratio of depreciation expense to, to the related property, plant, and equipment account, and again, we can compare the, the, that ratio, the comparison of the expenses related to depreciation related to the property, plant, and equipment, and compare that to prior years and see if there's significant differences as well as to industry averages. We also want to look at the repairs and maintenance expense account, and we can take a look at the repairs and maintenance expense 
and related to the property plant and equipment account. Why would we do that? Because remember that the repairs and maintenance is going to be in relation to the property plant and equipment because it's going to be the repairs and maintenance on the property plant and equipment. So we want to see if that's normal. And we also might want to see that if anything was recorded in repairs and maintenance that should have been capitalized. Was any purchases of property plant and equipment incorrectly recorded in repairs and maintenance? We might compare some types of insurance expense as a ratio of the property plant and equipment. And we want to review capital budgets for property plants and equipment. So that's going to be the, how much should have been purchased in terms of budgets for property plant and equipment to the amounts that were actually spent for property plants and equipment. So that's going to be our normal comparison. We'll say, what did you think was going to happen in terms of purchases for property plants and equipment? What was the plan beforehand? And then what actually happened and take that comparison and see if there's any significant differences. Once we do the ratio analysis, that could give us some indications on where we want to drill down further. We can then do some more subset of testing if we're testing for completeness of property plants and equipment. We're going to get the lead schedules, which will detail schedules of additions and disposals of the assets. We're going to do our, our systematic footing of the schedules. We want to make sure that they add up. So we'll sit there with our 10 keys and add them up and make sure that they are actually calculated correctly. And we can also trace a sample of the assets to the property plant and equipment subsidiary ledger in order to, to reconcile those two. In that way, we can see that the new additions actually, of course, made it to the subsidiary ledger. And if the subsidiary ledger ties out to the general ledger and the financial statements, then we're tying it out to the financial statement balance. We also want to look at cutoff testing. Now, cutoff testing is probably something that could have been done. We, we, it might have some overlap with the accounts payable process when we were doing cutoff testing for purchases. And it's going to be a big deal for property plant equipment because they're big items. So many times companies may have different types of incentives to either purchase or put off purchasing of property, plants, and equipment. For example, they may have tax incentives to have purchases before the end of the year so they can have accelerated depreciation rates before the end of the year. They may want to put it off for other reasons after the year end because they want to have better cash flow or something like that. So there could be different incentives and in why they would rather have basically large, these large purchases happening either within the year that's being audited. I mean, if we're auditing 1231, the question is the cutoff, is it before 1231 or is it happening after 1231? So we want to test some of those purchases uh, before those big transactions that are going to be related to purchase of property, plant, and equipment and see if the transaction actually happened uh, before 1231 and therefore should be on the books as of 1231 and the related uh, cash disbursements and the related any liabilities should be on the books as of that time or was it actually happened after 1231 and therefore, it should be on the books after 1231. What usually determines that? It's usually going to be the custody of the asset. So if they purchased the asset, uh, did, was it actually shipped to them? Did they actually receive it at that time? So oftentimes, that type of testing will come down to the, the shipping. When testing the assertion of existence, what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at all the major transactions that have happened. We're going to look at all the major purchases that are going to happen. And again, you can think about taking a look at the GL or taking a look at, this, at the list of all activity. Shouldn't be as much of it because it's property, plant, and equipment. So we, we can test basically all the major transactions and we can vouch those transactions back to the documentation. So we're going to say, let's see the actual purchase documents. Clearly, when we're talking about large purchases, we should have, you know, an invoice and documentation. If there's any loan related to it, then we can get that documentation at that time as well. Uh, we could also go out and actually physically examine some of the new purchases, depending on the audit we are doing as well.
when we do observe the assets, we may do that. We may try to schedule this at the same time. So clearly, if we're going out there to count the inventory, we're probably going to schedule that same amount of time to observe some types of physical assets and new assets that are out there as well. Rights and obligations. So do they have the rights and obligations to the equipment? And obviously, we're going to look at any invoices that are have. We're going to have look at any other documentation, including any other kind of loan documentation, and determine the rights and obligations. That's the one where we're also going to have some issues where if it's a, if it's a capital lease, we want to determine uh, if if that's a correct way to record it. Is it a capital lease, meaning do they have ownership of it in substance or not? Is it actually a lease where they're just leasing it and they don't have ownership of it? Which of course is a big difference because there's a big difference between us putting the asset on the books as uh, an asset and not recording it on the books and just paying lease payments for it. The assertion of valuation. So valuation, is it reported on the books? We see it on the books, we see it valued there. Is it valued correctly? How are property, plant, and equipment valued under generally accepted accounting principles? At the purchase price, and then we depreciate them. So these are items that, of course, when we purchase them, we're assuming they are purchased at the market price. So we should have the uh, purchase recorded at, at that time. That will be the market price at the time of purchase, plus anything that was needed in order to put that into process. So remember, that's going to be things like uh, any, any installment fees that are going to have if there's shipping that we had to pay for. That's going to be included in the price of the equipment that we're going to put on the books for use. All new major pur purchases will typically go through there and make sure that that acquisition cost was done right, that we included everything that should be in there, including the cost and anything needed in order to install that. We could also recompute a sample of the depreciation method. So we can take a look at the ledger. We can take a look at a, a sample of the ledger and start and recompute some of the depreciation to make sure that the depreciation is being accurately recorded. So remember, we're going to we're going to get the subsidiary ledger related to it. It's going to have all the assets on it and it's going to have the life of the assets and how we're going to depreciate it. Straight line, double declining. And we can recalculate those and see that uh, the assets on the books correctly. The, the depreciation expense is correct according to our recalculation as well as the book value and the accumulated depreciation. We also need to test for impairments of long-lived assets as well. So remember, those we need to put, if, if the impairment was greater than the depreciation on it, then we should be recording the asset down to record it to the lower uh, value after the impairment. Depending on the type of asset, we may need experts to look into this process as well. If we believe there's an impairment of assets and we need to value those types of assets, we may need to put an, an expert that knows those types of assets to determine what the... Uh, there are also some issues with disclosures that we want to take a look at in terms of the valuation for disclosure purposes. We want to take a look at the disclosure of the life of the assets and what kind of depreciation methods we're going to use. Disclosures related to liens against an asset. We want to take a look at disclosures related to lease agreements with regards to the capital assets as well. Once we have all this information, then of course we're going to take a look at the assessment we have, determining on inherent risk and the control risk, and then how much testing we need to have. Then we're going to gather all that evidence and within our working papers and make a review and a decision as to whether the evidence backs up the assertions and therefore we can make a decision that the amounts for property, plant, and equipment are reported materially correctly or based on the evidence that they have not been reported materially correctly with in accordance with generally accepted accounting principles. Stuff with the prepaid expenses. And remember what the prepaid expenses are. Those are going to be things that we paid for before we used the, or consumed the thing that we paid for and therefore we prepaid for it and it's going to be an asset rather than an expense because 
we expense things as we use them, not necessarily when we pay for them. The main example of that is going to be insurance. That's the main example we're going to have in every audit because every, every audit, every company hopefully has some type of insurance and therefore we're going to have to apply this principle to the prepaid of insurance in, in every audit. And the same idea will be in other types of prepaids. We could have like prepaid rent. We might prepay the rent beforehand. We might have prepaid interest beforehand before we had used it. In the case of insurance, it's always going to happen because that's the nature of insurance. We're going to pay for the insurance and then we'll be covered. We cannot pay for the insurance after we get, for example, in a car accident in order to cover the car accident. We have to pay for the insurance before we get in the accident in order to be covered for it. Now, if we don't get into an accident, it doesn't mean that we never get the benefit of the insurance. It's not like we're using the insurance at the time of the car crash only. We're, we are consuming the ability to have coverage reducing our risk throughout the whole time period that the insurance is being consumed. Now many times the insurance is going to be bought for a year or multiple years at one time. So the point is that when we pay for it we can't just say we're going to expense it at the time we bought it because what will happen is we'll have this big expense there that will reduce the net income at that time period. If we match that, if we compared that to other time periods, then the next month later of course would have no expense because we paid for it all in the first time period. So what needs to happen is we need to spread that expense out over the time period that we are consuming it. In this case, the time period of the coverage. That's going to be the idea of the prepaid insurance and all types of prepayments. Now, when we think about the inherent risk, we're going to look at our, our risk factors here. we got the inherent risk and the control risk, and that's going to help us determine how much testing we need to do. In terms of inherent risk, that's the risk that the company doesn't have a lot of control over because it's kind of the nature of the task we are in. Now the prepaid area, unlike some other areas we looked at, which varies a lot from different kind of companies, it's usually a fairly low risk because there's not a lot involved in the process of the accrual, not a lot of complexity involved in it. Therefore, it's not something that uh, there's going to be often problems in in order to have a, a risky inherent risk factor. So the inherent risk is usually going to be fairly low on the prepaid. The other factor then will be the control risk. That's the kind of stuff that the company has control over by setting up policies and procedures within the process. When we talk about the prepaid expenses, they're, they're going to be in the purchasing process, somewhere in the purchasing process. So the controls related to the purchasing process we're looking for are authorization, are the, is the purchasing authorized, and uh, is it recorded in the right spot. So the classification of where these things are going to be reported in terms of is it in the expense in this case or is it reported as the asset and usually for prepaid uh, insurance of course the control is probably going to be set up that i mean if we just look at this computer system when they enter the data to pay the insurance bill the, pro the process usually would be that you enter the insurance bill and the system just automatically puts it in there as an asset rather than an expense so that when we then review it or the adjusting department reviews it at the end of the month then they determine how much of that expense should be prepaid, how much of it has been consumed of it, and then they make the journal entry debiting the prepaid, I mean the insurance expense, and crediting the prepaid, reducing the prepaid from what the original amount was purchased, and recording the expense related to the portion that had been expired. So the substantive testing, you could probably think about what the substantive testing, you probably have it in your mind already. What's going to be the substantive testing related to the prepaid insurance and uh, the insurance ex expense? Well, if we're testing for existence, we're trying to say, hey, that prepaid insurance that they're telling us is there on the balance sheet. How do we know it actually exists? 
Well, we can look at the policy. We can pull the policy, so we're clearly going to get the policy and confirm that it, that it exists in that format. We also could contact uh, the insurance broker because that would be a bit more of an assurance because we contact them directly rather than getting a report that went through the customer. So that would be a bit higher level of assurance. But we're going to get the policy in some way or another. We want to determine the rights and obligations. We want to make sure that who the beneficiary of the insurance policy is from the, from the broker. And then, of course, we have the valuation. So the evaluation is going to be that calculation. We can reperform basically this calculation to see if the accrual is right. It's not a very complicated calculation, so we can oftentimes uh, do that. And so that would be, well, let's see what the insurance policy covers. Has it been paid for yet? And if it's been paid and it covers, let's say it covers the middle of this year and then it goes into the middle of the next year and we have our audit as of 1231, well, then if the whole thing, if the whole policy was paid for and half of it was used this year, then that's the amount that had should be expired. That should be included in the expense half of it. And half of the purchase price of that policy should then be as of 1231 on the books as a prepaid expense. That's going to be the prepaid portion that we will have there. Then we have the classification. So in terms of classification, there might be some different areas in terms of where the insurance expense should be recorded. For example, uh, we might have a manufacturing company. So if we have the manufacturing and we have insurance related to the manufacturing, uh, that portion should be going to the overhead and it should be part of the inventory. Now we're going to move to the auditing of intangible assets. So intangible assets are going to be those assets that have an extended value. They have value to the company but they are intangible. They don't have any, you can't touch them. They are not tangible. So those are going to be those things like trademarks or brand names, uh, internet domain names or intangible assets. We could have customer lists as intangible assets. Copyrights are an example of intangible assets. Franchises, uh, a patent are going to all be types of these intangible assets, things that have definite value and we want, and they should be reported at the, the value and show that value. But they uh, do not have tangible substance. Inherent risk related to intangible assets. We're now going to be looking at the inherent risk. We're going to look at the control, uh, control risk and then see how much testing we need to do. Now, when we think about inherent risk related to intangible assets, it really depends on the type of company in terms of how many intangible assets they're going to have, what type of intangible assets they're going to have. But the nature of intangible assets is somewhat unclear because they are intangible. They're not easy to value. And therefore, uh, the inherent risk is probably going to be fairly high in that case. So whatever in intangible assets we have, there's going to be different types of tests that we need to have in order to see whether those intangible assets, uh, whether the value of them is still what it is, if it's been impaired, if the value has really gone down. So because of that kind of complexity and being able to do those valuations, uh, the inherent risk would be higher. Then, of course, we need to look at the control risk, control risk being those processes that the business can have in place in order to safeguard problems that could happen within the process of the intangible assets. The controls related here, things we might be looking for is the expertise of the people that are determining the fair market value of the assets. We'd want to take a look at the process. What's the process that's going to be used to determine the fair market value of the intangible assets? Do we have experts that are employed? Did the company bring in experts that would are experts at valuing these types of intangible assets? And we'd want to know what kind of assumptions managements are taking when they value those assets. Then we need to consider how much substantive testing we need to do. So we have the inherent risk, we've got the control risk. We know the inherent risk is usually going to be fairly high if 
these intangible assets are significant, they're material to the organization, then we're going to probably be doing some substantive testing on them. The assertions that we're usually going to be testing for in terms of substantive testing would be existence and completeness, valuation, rights and obligations, and classification. When testing for existence, we're often going to look at the point in time that the intangible asset was developed or acquired. If it was a copyright or a license or some kind of trademark, uh, we could examine the legal documentation supporting the validity of the asset. With regard to completeness, we're really concerned with whether the asset has deteriorated, deteriorated in value, and we want to see what type of impairment testing we'd be looking through, get the list of the intangible assets, and look through the impairment testing to see that they're properly, uh, if there's any impairment values. The assertion of valuation, then, is going to be one of the most important assertions we're going to have. When the intangible assets are purchased, they're usually going to be put on the books at the purchase price. If it's been determined that the asset has then been impaired, then we need to review the process for the calculation in terms of was the revaluation for the impairment done correctly. If there's a market price in this process, then that's not going to be too difficult to come up with an impairment value or estimate whether the impairment value was done properly. But in many of these areas, these types of things are going to be unique in that there's not going to be an exact market price at that point in time for us. Therefore, there's going to be different techniques we can use to use uh, measure the impairment of it and the value of the intangible asset. But of course, they're all going to use some types of assumptions.